And you'll need a set of notes that the guys are handing out on the way in. And we'll be looking at those notes in just a moment. But on the back cover, there are some announcements. Two weeks from today, you see on the 25th, is the four-week newcomers orientation. And that will be during this hour. And it'll go, as I say, for four weeks. It's a class that I teach. We give you a notebook of material. And that notebook uh, goes through what we believe, where we, how we, our church started, why we do things the way we do, uh, ministries that are available to you, and how they're structured, uh, all of that. And it's in a small and informal setting, so you can ask any questions that you have. There's no obligation to you to join our church, and we don't hassle you after you do attend it or hound you in any way. It's informational. Uh, it's pretty thorough for those uh, four weeks, and I encourage you to take it if you're new to our church. It'll help you decide if this is where the Lord would have you serve and, and grow. So that starts in two weeks. You don't need to register for that. You just need to uh, come during this hour, two weeks from today, and we'll be in one of the adult classrooms out that back door and across the hallway. Uh, also, uh, the... Uh, Next newcomer's brunch at our house is Saturday, the 1st of December, December 1st at 10 a.m. at our house, newcomer's brunch. We have those a few times throughout the year, and it's just an informal time for us to get to know you and you to get to know us. There's no program for that. Uh, it's just, as it says, uh, as I say, brunch. It's for newcomers, but you may be somebody who's been coming for a while and haven't been able to go to the, one of the brunches, so we we consider you a newcomer. Uh, in that case, and we would love to have you come. We need to know how many people are coming for that. You do need to register for that. Let the folks at the information center desk that's out in the lobby uh, know that you would like to come, and they'll put your name down uh, and give you a an invitation that has our address and phone number and a reminder of the date and, and time. Lastly, uh, by way of announcements, uh, we have the... Uh, December 7th, Ladies' Christmas Social. That's a Friday night, and many of you ladies have been to that. We've done it for several years now. This room is filled with tables that uh, a, a lady hosts, and then she has seven other ladies, eight ladies at a table. But we need table hosts, 24 of them. Uh, we've got most of those, but I'm told we don't have quite all of them. So ladies, if you'd be interested in hosting one of the tables, then uh, sign up for that. You can do that. At the kiosk that is in the resource center out the back door and across the uh, hallway. Uh, or you can contact Marcy Hunter. She's coordinating that. If you have questions in our program that you should have received on the way in today, there's contact information in there for Marcy. All right. We are in our series. You've got questions. God has answers. This is the seventh of eight weeks. So next week is the uh, final week of our series. And in the six weeks prior to this, we have answered questions. How do we know God exists? Is the Bible consistent with science? Is the Bible reliable? Why does God allow suffering? Is Jesus the only way to God? Can anyone know for sure he's going to heaven? That was last week. And then today, as you see on the front cover of your notes and at the top of page one, why are there so many hypocrites in the church? Next week, our final week of this series will answer the question, isn't the church just a man-made institution? But today, why so many hypocrites? You see at the top of page one, 
that uh, this is how hypocrite uh, is defined by Merriam-Webster. A number of different things might pop to mind when you hear the word hypocrite. Maybe it's a politician caught in a scandal. Maybe it's a religious leader doing something counter to their creed. Maybe it's a scheming and conniving character featured in soap operas. But it's likely that the one thing that doesn't come to mind is the theater. The word hypocrite ultimately came into English from the Greek word hypocrites, which means an actor or a stage player. The Greek word itself is a compound noun. It's made up of two Greek words that literally translate as an interpreter from underneath. That bizarre compound makes more sense when you know that actors in ancient Greek theater wore large masks to mark which character they were playing. And so they interpreted the story from underneath their masks. So you might have one actor who's playing several roles and they're putting on different masks at, at different times. That was the idea. The Greek word took on an extended meaning to refer to any person who was wearing a figurative mask and pretending to be someone or something they were not. Over time, hypocrite gained its more general meaning that we use today. Namely, a person who acts in contradiction to his or her stated beliefs or feelings. Now, the key word in that last line, a person who acts in contradiction to his or her stated beliefs or feelings. It's the word stated. That's uh, an important, that's an important word for the perception that there are more hypocrites in the church than in other places. Because of what's next in your notes, in the middle of page one, and that is the question, what's your, what's your standard? You see, one reason that Christians are so often accused of hypocrisy is that we have a published standard to which we're compared. And that's why that word stated beliefs is important to the definition. The Bible reveals the character of God and it establishes guidelines for the behavior of those who claim to belong to God. Therefore, it should be no surprise that Christians are easy targets for the charge of hypocrisy since we, in fact, have a public and not just a public standard, but a public and lofty standard to live up to. So a necessary ingredient of hypocrisy is stated beliefs. If you don't have stated beliefs, then nobody else can accuse you of hypocrisy. And that's why I say, on the other hand, many non-Christians have no advertised standard by which they're evaluated. Most make up their own rules known only to them. Notice, known only to them, not stated, not published, not advertised. So there's no way for others to know when they're violated. If you are, that should say your, if you are your own standard you can always meet it. If you're your own standard, you're never a hypocrite. And we're going to see that's possible, and some people are honest enough to admit they don't even meet their own standard, but even then, it's their own personal standard. It's not something that's stated. It's not something that's published. It's not something that's advertised. And so, therefore, nobody from the outside can say, aha, look at you. But for Christians, it's quite different, isn't it? We've got a published standard. We've got a book. We've got a book written by God. So it's the loftiest of standards. It's, an out there, it's out there for everyone to read. So the requirement for hypocrisy is that there be a standard. So to the person who makes this accusation, you might ask this. 
Would it be possible for someone to know if you're a hypocrite? I mean, you say there are so many hypocrites in the church. So many people who claim to be Christians are, are hypocrites. So, you know, and I'm not saying be argumentative about it, but just say, would it, would it be possible for, even possible for anyone to accuse you? I'm not saying you are a hypocrite. I'm not calling you a hypocrite. But would it be possible for anyone to even accuse you of being a hypocrite? And they'll have to think about that for a bit. On what basis would someone be able to do that? What is it that they would be comparing you to? What standard is it that you have let everybody know that you live by? I'm not saying you don't have one. I'm not saying you don't try to do it. I'm saying, is it out there? Because as I talk to you, and this person may be your coworker, or a family member, or a neighbor, I don't know what it is. But you know what mine is? Because it's in a book. And it's therefore something that I can be compared to. So you might ask the person that. And so it's actually, friends, a testimony to Christianity that its standard is so high that it can often be violated. I mean, one of the reasons there's the real possibility and, in fact, the actuality, the, the real occurrence of hypocrisy within professing Christianity is because there is such a, a lofty, high, high standard. So I don't know who said this, but I've heard it a number of times over the years. Hypocrisy is the tribute that vice pays to virtue. Hypocrisy is the tribute, the honor, that vice, evil, pays to virtue. Hypocrisy is the tip of the hat, the honor that bad or evil pays to good. Now, what's meant by that is this. Hypocrisy is an acknowledgement that what is being faked is actually a good thing. And that's what meant by is meant by hypocrisy is the tribute that vice pays to to virtue. And so is if Christianity is a good thing and it is, it's the best. If God's standards are good things and they are, they're the best. Then you're going to have people who try to emulate those, who fake those. Hypocrisy is the honor, the the tribute that even evil people pay to to what's to what's good. So I'm just trying to get you to think about this notion that the accusation, the very concept of hypocrisy assumes something against which the person is compared. And the reason there is the perception, I'm just using that word perception, not necessarily the reality, although there are certainly hypocrites who claim to be Christians, but there is this perception, the reason the perception, one of the reasons it's so widespread is because the standard is so high, it's published, it's out there, and you can be compared to it. So once you hear someone say that, I would encourage you to then kindly challenge them to think about that. Could you, who is making that accusation, could you ever even be charged with being a hypocrite? You're charging Christians with that. You're charging the church with that. But could that ever happen with you? And for most people, the answer is no, because they haven't. Many of them thought about their own standard. They just kind of do what they do. Some people have, but even those who have haven't published it. It's not out there. Bottom of page one. Author David DeWitt tells of an encounter 
with a man who recognized that he was doing this very thing. He says, a few days ago, I had a man in my office who had been an atheist most of his life. He told me how as a teenager, he had rejected the beliefs of the church he grew up in, and he replaced them with a moral code that he thought he should live by, and then he tried to live by it. To my surprise, I couldn't keep my own moral standards. What's worse, I found myself pretending I was the kind of person I had decided I should be, even though I couldn't pull it off. That's fascinating, DeWitt said. You made up your own religion, converted yourself to it, and then backslid from it, and so you became a hypocrite about it. He agreed, and we both had a good good laugh. Now, this guy was honest with himself. But notice, this standard that he had created, this quasi-religion, was his personal private standard. So he knew personally that he was being a hypocrite, but no one else did because it was, again, because it was not public. Most often, if people are honest, they don't even live up to their own standards, let alone God's. So everyone is a hypocrite in that sense, if that's the way you want to define hypocrite. Do you actually live up to the standards that you profess to be ideal? I mean, I don't. And this side of heaven, no Christian does. And people who would be honest with themselves would have to say the same thing, even about the codes they put together for themselves. But they can never be accused of being a hypocrite because no one else knows what that is. It's just private to them. It's their own, it's their own judgment about themselves. So another answer for the person who says there are So many hypocrites in the church (laughs) is this. Hey, there's always room for one more. (laughs) And, you know, it's funny, but it's it's true. That in in the sense of thinking about hypocrisy is failing to live up to a standard than everybody is. So on page two, we have this conversation between John and Mac that frame the issues for us, and then we'll bounce through some of those issues that come out of their conversation. Many of the questions that people have on this matter are surfaced in the following conversation, which is about Mac saying, prior to what I have here, I don't know anybody that I would like my daughters to emulate with their lives. That's what he says. I've been thinking, he said, about that. And he looked at John and he continued And what's even sadder, I don't want them to live like I do either. John nodded an understanding response. He was not sure what to say. Mac had been his friend since high school. As a lawyer, John had represented him as a real estate investor. Mac rented John his office space. But there was one thing they didn't share, John's faith in Christ. John had been a Christian for years, but Mac thought his beliefs were all foolishness. Five years before this conversation, John had tried to make a case for Christianity by showing that it was responsible for all the social progress and moral improvements of the human race. But Mac dismissed his claims, and that was the end of their conversation about Christianity for five years. But John had kept praying for God to give him an opportunity, a second chance. This looked like it was it. They both had teenagers, and they were naturally concerned about their future. I know what you mean, John finally answered. I don't want mine to live like I do either. Really, Mac seemed surprised. Then how do you... Uh, How would you like them to live? Like Jesus of Nazareth, John answered. Oh, good grief, Mac. Return, not me. Christianity is full of hypocrites, and I sure don't want my daughters to be like that. 
I didn't say anything about Christianity, John continued. I'm sure Christianity is full of hypocrites as anything else that's valuable. Light always tends to attract bugs, you know. (laughs) Any good idea will attract people who want to get in on a good thing without really being part of it. What I meant was, I want my teenagers to live like Jesus Christ. But if Jesus had the true religion, why do so many people who believe in him turn into hypocrites? Mac asked. The Bible doesn't say that everyone who believes in Jesus Christ will be perfect, just perfectly forgiven. Actually, a biblical Christian is one who admits that he is a sinner, which is just the opposite of a hypocrite. A hypocrite is someone who outwardly pretends to be good. But Mac objected, if believing in Jesus is going to be worthwhile, it seems like he ought to make people better morally. Well, are you sure that he doesn't? John said, you see, if somebody receives Christ into his life, the spirit of God begins to work on his desires so that after a while he should be changing for the better. I know some real creepy people that are supposed to be Christians, Mac broke in. Sure, John continued, but you need to compare them with what they were, not with what they would be if they were instantly perfect. The inconsistencies in their life should be steadily decreasing, but that doesn't mean they've arrived. And he gives this example. If a guy five feet tall who weighed 250 spoke to us about great eating habits, we'd probably call him a hypocrite. But if we learned that he weighed 300 pounds a month ago, that would change the picture. I personally hate when weight illustrations are used. but uh, (laughs) Well, Mac insisted, it it still seems to me that if the Bible's right, we should be able to look at people who associate themselves with it and see better people. But any product must be considered by looking at the product itself, John Reason. You wouldn't recommend that people quit working for a company because some people just work there to make money. I don't know, Mac exclaimed. I guess there's just something in me that hates hypocrites. Well, you're in good company, John said. You and I and Jesus all agree on that. As a matter of fact, when Jesus was talking to some religious hypocrites, he said, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how shall you escape the sentence of hell? I sure wouldn't want to be a hypocrite, Matt added. That's why I'm not a Christian, I guess. But Mac, the very fact that you don't think you're good enough to be a pattern for your daughters makes you the opposite of a hypocrite. A hypocrite is someone who outwardly pretends to be something he's not. A hypocrite would never admit admit he can't be perfect. Matt and John discussed five crucial aspects then on this matter. So why are there so many hypocrites in Christianity? If Christianity is to be doubted because there are hypocrites in our churches, we first have to be sure those hypocrites are really Christians. The legitimacy of anything original cannot be judged by the qualities of a phony. So here's an illustration. A grandmother sends away for the best recipes, but when they come, she substitutes ingredients she already has on hand for those in the recipe. So large substitute for butter, regular salt for seasoned salt, and so on. When the dish comes out tasting sort of funny and nobody eats much, She really couldn't legitimately complain to the company and tell them what she thinks of their recipe. You see, the recipe is just fine. That's what she did with, that's what she did with the recipe. So one of the, one of the problems that we do have, uh, in churches is people who claim to be Christians who are not. So in addition to what I said about us having as Christians a lofty standard, a published, advertised standard to which we can be compared, and therefore that gives this uh, perception that there are lots of hypocrites in the church, there's a reality to it as well. 
because vice pays to virtue this tribute in the form of hypocrisy, you have people in churches who are not actually Christians. So being associated with Christianity is to them a good thing. Being associated with Christians, they might deem to be a good thing. It might be a good thing for their kids. They might have all kinds of reasons why they want to be associated with the church and Christianity, but they themselves are not regenerate. They're not actually Christians. Are you aware that that's a real possibility? That profession is not the same as possession. That someone can profess Christ and not possess Christ. Someone can say I'm a Christian but go through the motions. Do the outward stuff. Do the stuff that we all see, but then at work, it's something else. Then in the neighborhood, it's something else. Then with their families, it's something else, right? We've all seen that. Most of us have seen that. I've seen that. I've seen that with people who want to be leaders in churches. And thank God, and I mean thank the Lord, I haven't seen that in our 18 years here. And I'm going to tell you one of the reasons I think that's the case. But the human heart, being sinful as it is, that tendency and that desire for position, for prestige, to be seen by people as being good, even if in fact we're not, uh, that's something that's ever present for us. So I've seen it. I've seen people who want to be in visible positions within the church. So they not only want to be in church, they want to be known to be in church. They want to be thought of. As a a Christian. But if you get an opportunity to talk to their family. You get an opportunity to talk to their co-workers. You get a roll of the eyes. That's sad, isn't it? It hurts the reputation of Christ. It hurts the reputation of his, his church. Now, why does that happen? That people can get into positions of prominence in the church. And then give Christ and the church a bad name. By failing to live as Christians. Because in some cases they're actually not. Why does that happen? One of the reasons it happens in churches like ours is that our government, our polity, the way we are run, we believe is biblical, uh, but but, so we want to do it biblically, but we have to be wise in the way we carry it out. Biblical church government is what's called congregational. So in a church like ours, there is, there's not to be any pope-like figure. So the senior pastor is not that. The ultimate authority, of course, in the church is the Lord himself. The human authority in the church is channeled through the congregation, the body itself. And the body, therefore, elects its leadership. So I had to be selected In order to have the position I have, Pastor Rich and Pastor Larry had to do the same thing. Our church had to vote on that. Our deacons, the same thing. Our entire leadership team had to be voted on by the by the congregation. They couldn't simply be appointed, voted on, approved by the congregation. We believe that's what the the Bible teaches about the government of the church. Okay, well, that being the case, though, how easy is it for the church congregation to know 
whether someone really meets the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. I mean, if you know the person very well and you know them outside of church and maybe they're a family member of yours even, or, you know, if you know them in all those settings, okay, but how many of us know those people in those settings, right? So you've got, you've got people voting on somebody who very often don't know that somebody in all of those settings and approving somebody for leadership. So congregational government is right. But we need to be wise in the way we go about that. I think one of the reasons we've been protected from that in the leadership of our church is because we require that those who would be leaders in our church have to jump through a whole bunch of hoops. Or to put it another way, we take Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3 seriously. I grew up in church. I grew up my entire life, have been my entire life in congregational government churches. My dad was a pastor. And what I saw when we would elect deacons, for example, is we would have a Sunday night service and the pastor would stand up and say, this is our annual meeting. After the Sunday service, they would have an annual meeting and we're electing officers and we're looking for two deacons. So here are slips of paper, put down two names, turn them in. And that's kind of the way it was done. And, and honestly, people would walk into that service a lot of times not even remembering that that's what we were doing. You get your slip of paper then and you're trying to put think of two names and you kind of look around and you put a couple of names down. And in terms of vetting those people for 1 Timothy 3, in the case of deacons, Titus 1 for pastors, uh, none of that took place. So there's a very good chance you're going to get some of those people for whom it's going to be revealed that they really don't meet the qualifications. So they're in this position now in the church, but they're out there in the workplace and there's something different. So we have some, some hoops for somebody to, to jump through. One, it's actually in our church's bylaws that for someone to be considered to be part of our leadership team, they have to have taken a sufficient amount of something called Leadership Institute. Pastor Rich leads that on uh, Saturday mornings. By the way, men, he'll be starting a new installment of that in January. And it'll meet once a month on Saturday mornings. And I encourage you to consider that. I consider encourage you to consider uh, taking that. Even if you don't ever care about being a deacon or on the leadership team, it'll just help you become a better leader and a better man of God. So we have that uh, for guys to go through some, some training. Uh, but more important even than that is the direct biblical qualifications for deacons given in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we have a questionnaire for that. That when someone is nominated to be a deacon, this questionnaire that is based on the qualifications listed in 1 Timothy 3 is given to people that have served with them in the church to give back to the nominating committee. That would be the leadership team, the current leadership team. Not to that other individual so they don't see what you said. It's given to some people who serve with them in the church and this is really important, given to some people who serve with them outside of the, know them outside of the church. In particular, we prefer that some unbelievers that they're associated with turn this thing in. So we ask the candidate, give us some names at work, primarily, of people who know you, preferably unbelievers, who can fill this thing out. And we explain, I explain, I send this note to this person and I say, 
So-and-so has been nominated to be a deacon at our church. The Bible gives qualifications for that. And here's a two-page questionnaire. We're asking you, because you know them, to help us to determine if they meet these qualifications. On a scale of zero to seven, zero being the lowest, seven being the highest, how do you rate this person on? And then we give a couple of sentences on each of the qualifications from 1 Timothy 3. And we get these things back. And... It is one of the most gratifying things uh, that I have had in ministry that the guys who have served on our leadership team in all of these 18 years, we get those things back, you look at them, and you've got unbelieving people saying things like, this is one of the, one of the men of highest integrity that I've ever met. An unbeliever in the workplace saying that. And giving them these high marks on all of these lofty qualifications to be a leader in the church. So I think one of the reasons that we've been protected from that, nothing's foolproof in a fallen world, but one of the reasons is you have to jump through some hoops. And so that helps you not have people who are hypocrites, who want to be in positions of of power, and they're looking for that rather than being the genuine article. And so you have people in churches who are professors but not possessors. Many of them want powers. They, they want to be in with the in crowd. They want to be in positions of power. And it hurts our churches as a result. And it hurts the testimony of Christ. It hurts the testimony of his, of his church. Top of page four. Unregenerate people who go through Christian-sounding religious formalities without having received Jesus Christ as their God and Savior are not real Christians. The presence of such hypocrites is just a fact of life without, about anything that's worthwhile. There are false diamonds in jewelry because real diamonds are valuable. We make copies of Rembrandt's paintings because the real ones are priceless. Quacks spring up in the medical profession because good doctors are an asset to the community. Actually, the fact that Christianity attracts phonies is a good indication that it's real. As John said in the conversation, light always tends to attract bugs. Okay, but if Jesus had the true religion, why doesn't he keep his followers from turning into hypocrites? Well, there's no claim in the Bible that true believers in Jesus Christ become perfect in this life. A true believer is one who recognizes his sinfulness and need for Jesus Christ as his Savior. Although Christians do change for the better, the change is from the inside out. It does not only concern itself with outward appearances as it does with hypocrites. Jesus was harder on the hypocrites than any other group. His words in Matthew 23 are considered by many to be the harshest language he ever used. Jesus was talking to and about hypocrites. It's interesting to contrast our Lord's description of a hypocrite in Matthew 23 with the Bible's description of a real believer. Hypocrites, Jesus said, do all their deeds to be noticed by men, whereas biblical believers seek only to be approved by God. Hypocrisy turns people off from religion, but godliness reasons with people in a gentle, understanding way. Hypocrites train others to be what they are. Speaking about their converts, Jesus told them, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. But real Christians train others to be like Christ first and not themselves. Hypocrites deal only with external formalism, neglecting internal realities. Biblical believers, on the other hand, emphasize inner attitudes, knowing that God changes people from within. So we then... If we're professing Christians, we need to be careful in how we represent Christ 
to an unbelieving world in our circle of influence. You have seen, and I have seen, Christians uh, who present themselves as better than others, holier-than-thou types. You know what I'm talking about? Well, okay, if you're going to present yourself as holier-than-thou and I'm better than anybody else, then you better be sure you're going to be scrutinized. You better be able to to live, live up to that. You know, what we ought to do, friends, is represent accurately what the gospel is and what the gospel has done to and for us. And yes, we should be able to say, if we are genuine believers, if we've been regenerated, if we've been born again, the Spirit of God lives in us. He's given us spiritual life that we didn't have before coming to Christ. And so we should be able to say, I'm not where I need to be, but I'm not where I was. All of us should be able to say that. And there should be tangible evidence of that. Yes, we can say that, but certainly never in a bragging way because all all of this, we must communicate, is only accomplished by the power of God and the grace of God operating in our lives. So I don't think I'm better than you. I'm better off, but I'm not better. I'm better off in that I have a relationship with Christ and my sins have been forgiven past, present, and future, but that doesn't mean I'm better. And I only am what I am by the grace of God. That's what Paul said. By the grace of God, that's a quote, I am what I am. But people perceive that from us and we need to be careful that we don't buy, that we don't uh, play into that perception that we think we're better than other people. Most of you know my uh, brothers. I have three. They are unsaved. And I've always been keenly aware of how they view me, how they view Christians in general, and seeking to very carefully avoid communicating to them in any way that I think I'm better than, than them. In fact, I've gone so far as to talk very directly with them even write letters to them to explain, this is how I see myself, this is how I see you, and this is why I want you to trust Jesus. And I explain, I don't think I'm better than you. And it is only because of what God has done that I am what I am. And so I want you to know that. And I want you to know that I see myself as someone who could be in any set of circumstances. Not pastoring a church, I could be living homelessly. I could be engaging in substance abuse like my brothers do. I could have all of that going on. It's only because of the grace of God in Jesus that I'm not. And so I want you to understand that. But I'm telling you this, friends, because it's extremely important that we don't misrepresent Christ and his church by communicating to people that we think we're better than they are. And let me say one other thing and I'll move on. It's extremely important as well in this vein that we don't communicate to people in the world that we don't like them. Well, why would anybody get the idea that Christians don't like people in the world? Because, one, we make the mistake of aligning ourselves with politics. And in aligning ourselves politically 
then the world perceives us as saying what our favorite politician is saying. So be extremely careful about aligning yourself with anyone who the world is now going to see as somehow representing you and they're going to give this inaccurate representation. Don't do it. So the idea that it's us against them, the idea that we don't like these people because they are, and then we give these descriptors, you guys have all heard them, what they are and what they're like. And so we don't like them. So it gives an inaccurate view that we're better. And what we really want are people that are like us. When in fact, if we're going to carry out the mission that Jesus gave to us, we've got to be in relationship, we've got to be in friendship with, we've got to show love to those who are precisely not like us. Otherwise, we have no opportunity, none, for the gospel to have effect on other people. So avoid the better than anyone else, holier than thou, we don't like them attitude that contributes to this perception that there are these hypocrites in Christianity. When we align ourselves with political people so that people can think that what they say represents what we believe, be really careful. I saw a um, declaration from 1999 put out by the Southern Baptist Convention. 1999, that's an important year. Because you know who the president was then? It was Bill Clinton in his last couple of years. He had gone through an impeachment. You remember? A scandal. And this resolution was how important it is for politicians to have moral character. Anybody seen one of those lately? A declaration like that about how important it is for politicians to have moral character? The answer, that's no. So people can look at that and they go, well, wait a minute. It was really important for these guys to have moral character when it was a guy you didn't like. And now not so much. And now all of that stuff that you were preaching to me about how important it is to live to this standard, all of a sudden that's not so important anymore for political reasons. All right. I'm done. Maybe literally. But avoid the holier than thou so that people don't misperceive who we are, who Christ is, what the church represents, and then the claim of hypocrisy. Bottom of page four. If Jesus really changes people, why aren't all Christians morally better than all non-Christians? Though God does deal with true believers, he does not make them perfect all at once. It's a great compliment to Christianity that people expect Christians to be better people. But some people expect instantaneous change. When someone complains that a certain person who claims to have received Christ is living inconsistently, a good response would be something like, maybe so. But if you really want to know whether there's anything to his faith or not, look at him closely. Get to know him very well. See if there has been any change in his life. But be careful. You might find Christ that way. (laughs) And when you receive him, but are not yet perfect, others will think you're a hypocrite. 
Even Christians forget how long it takes to grow. People are often disappointed in others and the low pace of their change. Someone may have received Christ two weeks ago, has not yet joined the church or attended their Bible study. Besides that, he may still smoke or go to the bar. But for true Christians, over time, changes will be noticeable. But we might each ask ourselves, if we made a list of all our actions and attitudes two weeks ago and another list today, how much change would you notice? Probably not much. That does not mean that they're not really a Christian or the Spirit of God is not working in our life. It's just that God works from the inside and real growth takes time. It's hypocrisy that emphasizes overnight change in only external appearances. All right, if some Christians are hypocrites, doesn't that suggest that Christianity has some mistakes in it? We must encourage people to consider Jesus Christ in the Bible rather than what people do with Jesus in the Bible. Any product needs to be evaluated on its own grounds. We do not stop going to hospitals because some doctors are in medicine just for the prestige and wealth they can accumulate. Either hospitals are good ideas or not. If they are, then insincere doctors don't make them a bad idea. So Jesus must be presented to people as God and the Bible presented as God's revelation to man. That requires encouraging others to get their eyes off the hypocritical things that have been done with Jesus Christ or Scripture and back to the real product itself. And then lastly, how can I become a Christian if I hate hypocrisy? Well, to hate hypocrisy is to agree with Jesus. A non-Christian who hates hypocrisy is on the same page as with Jesus and all genuine Christians. Jesus said to those hypocrites that they would not escape the sentence of hell. So if one dislikes hypocrites, that's good. But if one dislikes hypocrites, it makes little sense to spend eternity with them. Okay? To not receive Christ is to end up the same as the hypocrites, eternally speaking. All right, next week, we're going to consider the question, isn't the church just a man-made institution? You guys have heard that before, uh, probably in this language. Uh, I don't believe in organized religion. You ever heard that? And so I don't need the church. I have a relationship with God apart from organized religion apart from the church so what's implied is the church is is something that's discretionary the church is something that's dispensable you don't have to it's not essential Um, so when people say to me uh, i don't believe in organized religion i say come to our church it's not organized (laughs) Uh, you'll see that from day one so we're going to deal with that objection that people have next week let's ask the lord to go with us okay Father, thank you for today, the opportunity to observe the Lord's table and to consider the body and blood of the Lord Jesus given for us. Lord, help us to be people who desire to live consistent lives, consistent with what we profess, consistent with what you have have done. Lord, help us to be people who see ourselves accurately, that we, yes, are not where we were, but we are not where we need to be or will be. Help us to be humble people and communicate in a humble and accurate way to the, those in the world with whom you place us in contact. Help us to communicate that humility, that it's only by the grace of God that we are by what we are. Help us to communicate it in attitude, in word, and, and in action. May people see in us that we don't think we're better than them. We, don't, we are not holier than thou. But we love the fact that we're related to the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is our, he is, we are co-heirs with Christ. We have a relationship with God because of him, and we want them to have the same thing. 
And so help us to communicate that as your ambassadors. And Lord, help us to thereby avoid this charge of hypocrisy and grant us a wisdom in the way we speak to people who make this charge. Help us to communicate these truths that we've discussed today uh, in a way that is winsome uh, and uh, but accurate and truthful at the same time. Give us opportunity. Open doors, we ask you this week. Grant us safety and bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.